Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, no doubt you've heard Della Millard is back in the news trying to overturn his multiple murder convictions. We'll talk with Susan Claremont, the reporter who covered the Bosma trial for the Hamilton Spectator all those years ago. And also on the program today, the Canadian Football Hall of Fame has some new inductees with the focus on some great Alouette players, including former Montreal Alouette and CFL Commissioner Larry Smith. We'll talk with Ron Foxcroft of uh, Fluke Transport of Fox 40 and talk about Larry Smith and his contribution to Canadian football. And Robert Smith of The Cure, no relation, I'm sure, uh, has publicly stated that he is, quoted, sick and tired of the way Ticketmaster is jacking fees up for their fans. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Convicted murderer Della Millard and uh, Mark Smith, of course, will be appealing their uh, convictions uh, from 10 years ago. As a matter of fact, Millard is representing himself once again. Uh, this whole story is just as is opening up wounds, a, a, a terrible, terrible occurrence uh, for the Bosma family, for the community, and uh, for many people who didn't even know the Bosma. We were just shaken by this. And uh, they're reliving that all over again, including our next guest who was there day in and day out in that courtroom and, and watched uh, those proceedings and, and certainly paying close attention to what's going on these days. She, of course, is uh, Susan Claremont, the award-winning columnist for the Hamilton Spectator. Uh, Susan, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for this today. I wish it was under better circumstances, though. Yeah, but, you know, this is important stuff, Bill, so thanks for having me. Talk to us about your feelings in this, and you and I talked after the trial, of course, about how it impacted you, uh, not that you were the, the, the only victim there. I mean, the, the, you sat there and watched the Bosma family day in and day out through this whole thing, uh, but I know it had a, an impact on you. It had an impact on just about anybody who was covering the story. Um, what's it like to almost relive this again as Millard and, and Smitch uh, essentially try to get out of the, 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 the sentencing? Yeah, you know, it, it has been uh, really hard, um, more so than I expected it to be. Uh, listening to those horrible details yet again, uh, seeing Dellen Millard, uh, Mark Smitch has not been in on um, on the Zoom uh, hearing at all. Uh, he's locked away in prison, but because Dellen Millard is representing himself on some of the matters, we're actually seeing him and hearing his voice. And uh, when I heard Dellen Millard talk publicly for the very first time about the murder of Tim Bosma, that was a moment. And all I could think of was, you know, it's hard for me to listen to this. I can't even imagine what it's like for Tim Bosma's family. And and those are the community, as as you reported, as this was going on, of course, uh, a very close knit family, uh, uh, you know, that were a, a big part of the Ancaster community within their own community up there. Uh, you never get over something like this. I mean, you're scarred for life uh, it, when it happens to somebody, that, a loved one in your family. Uh, but the whole community was shocked by this, and and you know they're reliving it now. It's and I know I've I've had emails from people that say, well, you know, the audacity of of and and the the insensitivity of a guy like Millard to do this. But but you saw those traits day in and day out, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, this is this is classic Dell. Uh, this is who he is. Everything from, uh, you know, thinking he's the smartest person in the room as he pretends to, to be a lawyer um, to, uh, you know, asking asking the panel of of Ontario Court of Appeal judges for an extension for more time 
to prepare for an appeal that he launched, uh, you know, which is just stretching it out uh, longer and longer for uh, the Bosma family, for uh, Laura Babcock's family, for the community, for um, for everybody who has an interest in this case. I, I mean, he it's it just it makes people angry. And I, like you, Bill, have been getting lots of emails this week from members of the public who have just had enough and want this to end. I know when I talk to our friends in the legal community and they'll, they'll tell you that, you know, you can launch an appeal, uh, but there has to be some basis for it, you know, an error in law, something like that. Uh, from what I've seen so far, and it's only been a couple of days now, uh, the, the whole thing, Millard's whole defense here seems to be, I got a raw deal. Now, how could I have done this? I mean, he's not, he's trying to relitigate the whole thing here, but he's not bringing anything new to the table. He's just saying it wasn't me, it was the other guy. You're absolutely right. A, a case at the uh, Court of Appeal um, has to argue that there was some error in law or that there is some new evidence that has never been heard before. And Millard representing himself has done neither of those things. Uh, you know, he has said things like, um, this was unfair to him, uh, that Mark Smitch did it all, uh, the killings, that is. Um, Millard has not denied that he helped to burn the bodies of Tim Bosma and uh, Laura Babcock. And today we'll hear what he has to say about the murder of his own father, Wayne Millard. That's the case that's being heard today. Uh, Mark Smitch is not even charged in that case. He was never involved in that case. So I'm not sure how Millard is going to try to weasel his way out of this one. And, and by the way, that's the defense basically that they used 10 years ago, wasn't it, Susan? But, you know, it wasn't me, it was him. You know, I just I just drove or whatever. But, I mean, some of the arguments are so feeble here. You know, you know why would I, why didn't I turn my phone off then? Well, <laughs> That's you got ten years right. to think about that, buddy. Uh, you made mistakes, as as you know, criminals often do, and uh, and they tracked him, and they you know, the police did an outstanding job, of course. And I know we can relive some of those days too, and the investigation uh, by so many uh, dedicated officers into this. But uh, but they left a trail, and you know, he can kick himself all he wants, but uh, you can't deny what uh, was factual evidence presented in that trial. Yeah, mounds and mounds of evidence. Um, and, you know, it was all circumstantial evidence. Uh, there was very little uh, in the way of DNA evidence. And that's because uh, in, in the case of Tim and Laura, the, the bodies were burned. Uh, but there was tons and tons of, uh, you know, text messages and phone calls and cell tower pings from phones. And, you know, one of the things that Millard argued this week, which was just really incredible, was that he said, you know, I'm I used to steal trucks and vehicles all the time, which is true. He did. And he said, and I was really good at it. And I covered my tracks and I'm I'm smart. So why would I make all these mistakes in in these two murders? I mean, that's what he's using as his his grounds for appeal, which is pretty incredible because 
we know that Della Millard is not nearly as smart as he thinks he is. And neither were any of the other people involved, uh, not Mark Smick, certainly, and not uh, some of the others who were sort of on the periphery of this, including Della Millard's uh, now notorious girlfriend, uh, Christina Nuga, who was involved in helping to cover up the crimes that took place. So there were there were lots and lots and lots of mistakes that led, uh, you know, a trail all the way to uh, Millard and Smitch. Uh, Nuga is another name that's in the news these days for all the wrong reasons too, but we'll have to pick that up another time. Susan, as always, uh, great talking with you again. Thanks for spending some time with us this morning. Thanks so much, Bill. Susan Claremont, award-winning uh, journalist and uh, reporter, of course, uh, for the Hamilton Spectator, who covered the, the Bosma trial day in and day out, and of course is paying close attention to what's going on with this appeal. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. More uh, inductees uh, listed now for the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, which, of course, is at Tim Hortons Field in downtown Hamilton, uh, with a definite uh, swing towards the the Montreal franchise, which is interesting uh, since they've been in the news in the last couple of days. Uh, One guy in particular I wanted to focus on, and that's uh, Larry Smith, former commissioner of the league and former Montreal Alouette. And to talk about that, please to welcome back to the program our good friend Ron Foxcroft, the CEO of Fluke Transport and Fox 40, of course. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, you know, I've known you for a long time, Fox, and you're a very sentimental guy, especially, I would imagine, this time of year uh, as you watch March Madness and, and yeah. are to the TV like we are. I mean, Purdue plays, number one, very Purdue's playing later on this afternoon. Uh, it's got to bring back a lot of memories for you, though, from, uh, from the, the, the great old days when you were, you were on the court with these guys. Oh, absolutely. You know, I got to tell you a real quick story on March Madness. I did the Sweet 16. I walked on the floor yeah. one day. There was 20,000 fans. And the CBS broadcaster was Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan was, like you, Bill, the PA announcer for the Grey Cup for the Fog Bowl. You were the PA announcer for the 1996 Grey Cup in Hamilton. I walked on and I said, Tim, I'm Canadian from Hamilton. And I knew he was Canadian. He said, do you know Angela Mosca? <laughs> and, and there was twenty thousand people. We were talking about Hamilton and CFL, and his dad was the general manager of the Edmonton Eskimos, Tim Ryan, a very famous broadcaster. Bill, and that was my uh, Sweet Sixteen game. So there's a just tremendous memories from working that. I'm off to um, uh, Albany to watch uh, some games down there this weekend, then over to Houston to the Final Four. Yeah, it'll be uh, really, really an exciting time. And I happened to work Shea Gilgis Alexander last night at the Raptor game. Yeah, we, I was going to ask you. I know we want to get into football in a second here, but yeah, you still keep in touch with a lot of these guys. I mean, the, the, some of the coaches that. Uh, uh, well, you were a referee, they were a coach. You know, say no more, say no more. Uh, but yeah. I mean, I mean, one of your dear friends, of course, is, is the great Jack Armstrong, of course, when he was coaching in Niagara. But uh, there have been some other guys that, that I know you stay uh, from time to time. I know you stay in touch with the referees, of course, even the ones who are yeah. retired now. Uh, but th- it, there's a family there, a group of, of especially collegiate basketball players. That, that It's like a brotherhood sort of, isn't it? No question. John Calipari at Kentucky, I called his first technical foul on him on Division One. We're close. John Baleen, uh, he didn't like me every time I, I refereed him. We're now good friends. He's coaching, assistant coach for the Detroit Pistons. And, you know, some of the people where you had confrontations, there's a, a once you leave the game and you go back into real life, there's a tremendous mutual 
respect. Uh, for example, Calipari and Baleen, and the list just keeps going yeah. on and on. I was so proud last night to see Shea Gilgus Alexander because Herbie said to him before the game, can I announce that you're from Hamilton? He said, the hammer. I grew up in Hamilton. I went to McNabb High School. Please tell everybody I'm from Hamilton. <laughs> Herbie's a great guy, too. Great stories there. Yes. Uh, yes. I, I still remember the classic story. Bobby Knight, of course, at Indiana was, uh, well, a fiery guy, uh, throwing chairs across the court, et cetera. And I, I remember when, when you had to have some minor surgery on your eye. Remember, and he, I, he told me this story. Just he, he sent you a note. He said, yeah, it happened 25 years too late. You got your eyes fixed. So yeah, and, they, and they don't forget, said- do they? He said, "There's ten coaches in the uh, in the Big Ten. They all wish you a speedy recovery by a close vote of uh, <laughs> six to four. <laughs> all right, let's let's shift over here because I want to talk about well players who have moved on, um, and uh, and get into management. One of those is Larry Smith, who's going to be inducted into the Canadian Hall of Fame. And of course, the ceremony will be in Hamilton uh, during the course of the season here at uh, Tim Hortons Field. But Larry was a guy who had a pretty good career as a Montreal Alouette as a running back, but." Uh, doesn't often happen that a former player goes right out and becomes the commissioner of the league uh, during a very tumultuous time. And, and you and I have talked about this in the past, Fox. Uh, if it yeah. weren't for guys like Doug Mitchell, the late Doug Mitchell, and, and people like Larry Smith at a very tumultuous time, uh, I don't know that we'd be talking about the Canadian Football League these days. It would be a different story, Bill. And you know what? There's a similarity here. Randy Ambrosi, the current yeah, commissioner, exactly. is an ex-player. And yep. he's done amazing things to get the uh, the CFL on a, on a solid foundation. But back when Larry was commissioner, it was a lot different, Bill, because you were involved, I was involved. I got very, very close to Larry Smith. He was the commissioner at a time when the Tiger Cats were in a very uh, unowner, desperate situation in 1993. Um, David Braley, Senator David Braley, had uh, sold the team to the city, paid all the bills, but now it was without an owner. And Roger Yaketti, Mayor Morrow, myself, and John Michelak and so on did, did a job to keep it alive. But Larry was the commissioner. And what the people may not understand, he lived in Aurora. He came here three days a week to work with management to find an owner. He then found George Grant and David McDonald. They took over. The rest is history. But Larry has many accomplishments. A lot of people talk about that U.S. expansion bill. And, and, you know, a lot of people have negative thoughts about the CFL. But uh, uh, one thing that your listeners should understand, all those American teams paid a franchise fee in the neighborhood of $3 million dollars. And there was about five or six teams that played paid $3 million, totaling 15 to $18 million, which kept the league alive. It was Toronto had problems. Vancouver had problems. The television network had said, if you lose Toronto and Vancouver on, and in the CFL, then we're canceling the TV coverage. So it mm-hmm. was a lot different. Uh, John Torrey was the chair. Larry was the commissioner. Jeff Giles was the CFO performing magic. He later became athletic director at McMaster University. But it was a difficult time. Larry loved the CFL. He was a great player. We met in 1993. He became my squash partner. And I remember meeting him and saying, Larry, I don't like you. 
you just ran for 158 yards in your first game against the Hamilton Tiger Cats, and Montreal beat Hamilton, and I'm a Hamilton fan. And he laughed. We became very close friends, and I watched a lot of Larry's accomplishments firsthand, and one of which, um, when the Montreal Alouettes in 1997 uh, scheduled a playoff game in the cavernous Olympic Stadium, yeah. it was pre-booked for another event. He moved the game to Molson Stadium at McGill University, and it was almost beyond repair, Bill. And they did that game. It turned out to be so successful. Montreal successfully moved to Molson Stadium in 1998 under Larry's directorship. Uh, it's it's the, one of the unknown stories or untold stories, I guess. But, uh, but you know, as you say, he was an outstanding football player with the Alouettes, but a, and a very very smart businessman too. I mean, he succeeded well after his football days. He, he just didn't sit around playing pinochle and then decided I'm going to be the commissioner. Uh, he he has a great track record in successful business, uh, as Randy does, of course. Randy Ambrosi, the current yes. commissioner of the league, but they've got that insight. They were players. They came up through the ranks, and the, you know the, that sort of thing. It really helped. Uh, and and you can't, I think overstate how desperate things were economically for the team. Uh, as you know, I, the 96 Great Cup was, was in Hamilton, and I, I had, did the game there in the stadium. I was the PA announcer for that game, which was a real honor. Uh, but I ran into Jeff Giles in, in the, the press box, and that was the, the Snow Bowl, of course, uh, where the Argos with Doug Flutie and, uh, and, uh, uh, and some other great Hamiltonians, by the way, Mike Morielli on that team uh, and others. Uh, one and I said to Jeff, "Great game." He says, "Yeah." He says, "I don't know how I'm going to pay these guys though. Uh, they oh, they just yeah. there was nothing in the bank account." And and Larry and and Jeff Giles and those other folks, John Torrey, who was the chair at the time, uh, had to think outside the box. And and it, it was their creativity and I think and their dedication to Canadian football that that got us out of that into where we are now. I admired Larry for his courage. He would always try something to make it better for the Canadian Football League. Bill, a lot of your listeners may not realize, but when he came out of Bishop, he he was the number one draft for the CFL. He had a degree in economics. And while he played for nine years, he got a law degree from from McGill University. Bill, getting a law degree is very difficult but extremely more difficult while you're playing CFL football for the Montreal Alouettes. So he had a a great foundation. He understood economics. He had courage. He understood the law. He was a great negotiator. Now, one of the things, too, a great achievement, uh, none of the U.S. teams uh, fared very well. In fact, Las Vegas Posse, they had uh, Jeff Reinbolt was one of the assistant coaches, yeah, yeah. Eric Tillman, Anthony Calvillo, and and um, Larry engineered after Las Vegas closed to have Anthony Calvillo come to the Hamilton Tiger Cats at, at a time. So the other thing he engineered, the Baltimore Stallions was a very successful U.S. franchise in the CFL. He the engineered... Cup. Yes, he engineered that team transfer to Montreal to become, I believe at the time, the Montreal Concords and then the Montreal Alouettes. So there's a whole list. And after he became commissioner and left, he ran the Montreal Alouettes. And we still remain close because his son 
played West played for Queens University, and I was traveling around town with um, Neil Lumsden and Jesse Lumsden while he played for Mac. So Larry and I would meet at Queens with Neil and and uh, Jesse, and and he just was uh, he loved Canadian football. And he gave his life to it too. And he's, as I say, such a, a deserving honor for him to finally get in there for the work that he's done. I, Fox, I got to run. Uh, yes. Thanks so much for the time today. Enjoy the madness. Uh, you know, we've got another few weeks of that. And uh, enjoy the final four when you get down there too. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Bill. Pleasure to be on your show always. Take care. Ron Foxcroft from Fluke Transport, of course, Fox 40, and former, of course, uh, referee for the March Madness, Hall of Fame referee for that matter. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, this is not really a new story. I mean, you know, another musical act who's upset about the price of tickets for their concerts. But uh, maybe the story here is that it's happening all the time right now, and some of the biggest stars are really getting ticked off. Uh, that they just heard the cure there, of course, and uh, their frontman Robert Smith uh, basically almost apologizing to the fans, saying he's sickened by Ticketmaster fees as uh, they go on their to the U.S. tour. Uh, I want to bring Eric Alper in the conversation. Eric, of course, is a publicist and music commentator, been in the biz for a lot of years. Eric, good to have you back with us again. Uh, this is a an ongoing theme, it seems like now. With the, you know the, the the stars are out here. We want them back on the road now after the pandemic and the shutdown and everything. But the cost of tickets is ridiculous, and maybe the message here, Eric, is don't blame the artist here. Yeah, never blame the artist. Um, you know, you can blame the artist for the high price of tickets because they're the one that um, that set those those fees. So when you see Bruce Springsteen or Taylor Swift selling their tickets, even in dynamic pricing for $5,000 or $2,500, that's all the artists. The artists get to decide. What the big story with The Cure is that not only did the front man, Robert Smith, go on Twitter um, saying that he was sickened and saddened by the fact that they were selling tickets for $20 for their upcoming tour and that the Ticketmaster fees were around $25 to $30. So it was actually more than the ticket. Ticketmaster has agreed that many of the fees that were being charged were high. And as a gesture of goodwill, Ticketmaster is offering a $10 refund for per ticket to the fan account and $5 per ticket to other fan accounts for the lowest price. So not only were people getting upset over the Ticketmaster fees, which is like whatever, call it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, but the fact that they are refunding their fee is astonishing to me because I think this is the first time that I can remember them actually doing that. Is this going to be a precedent-setting move, do you think? I think it, it, it absolutely makes it a lot easier to break down the barrier that is Ticketmaster. Look, Ticketmaster is a nameless, faceless organization that is nothing more than a front for the artists in order to help sell their tickets. Um, they do a really good job at it. I know people will complain. I know that, you know, sometimes, you know, they're they're waiting in line. But I think customers forget just how many people want to go see Adele or The Cure. Way more demand than the actual ticket. And Ticketmaster's site hardly ever crashes. They deal with anywhere between 150 to 500 million people every single year trying to get tickets. It's a really good website if you remove all of the the bad stuff that people think about it. But Ticketmaster's fees pays for the venue. It pays for the upkeeping of the website. It pays for so many things of the cost of doing business. Yes, they're making money. But, you know, when people start complaining about the high cost of tickets, um, 
that the artists are charging, all of that goes to the artists. And you mentioned at the top, you know, Bruce Springsteen and and indie bands and indie artists all around the world, they have not really made that much money in the last couple of years due to not being able to tour and the low royalties that streaming services are giving them. So why not charge whatever you think that you're worth? Well, and Springsteen's an, an interesting example because I, I can remember years ago, you and I having a discussion about Springsteen and, and Garth Brooks and a couple of other big artists were basically putting a ceiling on ticket prices and said, well, when we go on tour, this is all we're charging. And and it was, it was reasonable at that time. Uh, he seems to have swung over to the other side now. Yeah. And I think that that's okay. I, I think that, you know, these artists that are getting older, um, they, you know, it's interesting. You know, you mentioned Garth Brooks. So what Garth Brooks does is that he caps tickets at anywhere between $25 and $50 a ticket. Knows that there's going to be way more demand for his shows. So he will be in a city for five or six shows in order to meet that demand. In fact, when he was playing Calgary and Edmonton before COVID, I think he ended up doing something like seven or eight shows per city in order to just make sure that those people who wanted to go could actually go. With Bruce Springsteen, yeah, you know, he's got this blue collar attitude, but, you know, it's all a farce. And I love Springsteen more than most artists out there. Um, but that's his image that he has carefully curated. And Bruce Springsteen is no more real to you and I than Taylor Swift and the Kardashians. Um, you and I would never say to our bosses, you know what, we're going to offer you you know, a thousand dollars a week to work here. And we would never say, no, that's too much. We'll do it for free or for $200. <laughs> Nobody listening would ever leave money on the table when it comes to their work anyway. So why should Springsteen or the Eagles or the who be the same? I think what the big shock is, is that it's happened. The ticket prices have been rising way more than the inflation rates. Um, and that's maybe because I mean, maybe artists have been undervaluing what they're worth on the road for years and years and years. I've said that all the time. It's like, if people are willing to charge, if Beyonce is, is getting $10,000 for first row at all of her concerts, then maybe Beyonce should be charging $10,000 for her concerts. Yeah, it's a, it's a dilemma, for, but the however they decide to do this, and and you know the the Springsteens and the and the Garth Brooks or whoever it's going to be, uh, it's it fall, it all falls down eventually to the customer though. I mean, you know, we're the ones that are paying the prices, and and that's why we get angry. And and invariably, of course, as you say, uh, Ticketmaster is a faceless organization. I don't know who runs it. Well, I know Live Nation, but I mean, the, we yeah. don't know a name or a face. Uh, so you get mad at, at T Swift, you get mad at Springsteen and say, they don't care about the fans anymore. So, uh, this culpability here, but at the same time, is there an understanding and a realization that the fans are the ones getting dinged here? I think so. But when you're, when you're that kind of an artist, you're always going to have in the beginning of your career, the realization that not everybody is going to love what you do. Not everybody is going to love your music. Not everybody is going to love this album as opposed to your last album. And I'm not 100% convinced that they really care so much about the the X amount of people who love to bicker about ticket fees on, on Twitter because it's it's... Look, as much as you and I can say that Ticketmaster is a nameless, faceless organization, customers themselves are pretty nameless and faceless as well. Because I may not want to 
pay $5,000 for a bear ticket to go see Bruce Springsteen, but somebody will. And as yep. long as those seats are filled, as long as those shows are sold out, um, they'll, they'll never think another second about the person that can't afford it. If they did, well, then they would be charging the 500, 400, 300 sections pretty inexpensively. But Springsteen's, I think, uh, you know, somewhat of a really weird example, too. His average ticket price was $236 on this tour. It was really only the best seats in the house that were in the thousands of dollars. $236 to go see one of the greatest performers that we've ever had in history is a really good price. And well, that's the other side of this argument too. I know we're just about out of time. I mean, uh, you know, we went and saw Elton John. I guess it was last October when he finally, you know, yeah. was able to do the shows in Toronto. Uh, tickets were pretty darned expensive, but he filled the joint. And and I don't know anybody who walked out of the the stadium that night, Eric, and said, "Well, that was a lousy show." Uh, right. You know, you get you get your money's worth from Elton John and from Springsteen and and all these other ones and T Swift. I mean, and and they know that. So you know, I, I, no matter how angry you might be once you pay it and see you're on your visa bill, uh, you come out of that concert thinking, wow, that was money well spent. Yeah, yeah. You know what it comes down to, too? Not everybody deserves the new iPhone. I like, I, <laughs> I love a Porsche, but I can't afford it, so I don't have one. I don't complain to the Porsche company that their pricing is outrageous. For some reason, there's just this emotional connection between artists and customers, and I get it. It's just, it's always... Um, not as awful as this is going to sound, but it's the truth. Not everybody deserves to be in the first row of the Eagles concert. Exactly. Eric, always a pleasure. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. You too. Thanks for having me. We'll talk later. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.